spirit of reconciliation, a glimmer a day acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the A Glimmer A Day podcast. You will be hearing stories of people like you and me from all walks of life, all ages and experiences. Stories of hope, of sadness, of living through and overcoming hardship, of pain and of joy, of strength, resilience, and sometimes just getting through each day. And of course, the glimmers. Glimmers are micro moments of joy that help to soothe our overwhelmed nervous system that bring us joy. They can be anything from a little cup of tea in the morning to a beautiful sunset, to doing our hobby, to a big bear hug from our favourite person. Please note, we are not medical professionals and we don't claim to have any expertise or qualifications in mental health or physical health, but we only have our own stories to share. So if you are struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or talk to someone in your life who you think will be a good listener. If you are interested in telling your story, please email aglimmeraday at gmail.com or you can find us on our website www.glimmeraday.com or you can find us via our socials, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the usual ones. We hope you enjoy the podcast and we're very glad you're here. I hope you find lots of glimmers today and remember, you are enough. I'm delighted to welcome Eve Early to the A Glimmer A Day podcast. Eve is a truly inspirational lady. She is one of those awesome people who well and truly fills your cup. You can have a chat with her and you come away feeling that yes, you can achieve that dream. Professionally, Eve is a small business and career development coach and reinvention expert, providing worldwide services with her business, Empowering Change. It doesn't matter what age or stage you are at, it's never too late to begin again. Personally, she says her own exuberant third act began in 2008 when her youngest child was in college and she seized an opportunity to move from the US to Ireland. Business owner, coach, writer, storyteller, mother, grandmother, advocate, friend. So many hats worn well. I can't wait to hear her story. Welcome, Eve, and thanks so much for staying up so late to join me. I hope you're not too tired and because this uh, time difference is a bit of a pain. What time is it with you? So it's 9.30 in the evening, um, but I didn't stay awake. I took a nap at 6 and didn't oh. wake up until 9, so I, I'm feeling well rested. Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? 
I'm good. I'm good. It's um, it's a crazy time of year for me. Uh, life here in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, right on the border, actually. So in Ireland um, is eight hours of daylight this time of year, or at least at the, at the, at the depth of the darkness at, at solstice, it's eight hours of daylight. Um, and I tuck into it and in, it took a couple of years after I moved here to really appreciate it. Um, and also really appreciate, um, how, how generous, um, uh, we are as a people to have so much time off, even employers, uh, you know, in, in America, folks, you know, maybe they get Christmas, day, if they're lucky, they get Christmas Day off, but you're back to work the next day. And oh, wow. So, so, so getting used to the culture, a big piece of it was as a self employed person, getting used to um, budgeting <laughs> for very quiet Decembers. Yes. Um, but, but because my work is group work and it um, focuses quarterly. Um, I come out of that into a mad January January uh, dash to to fill groups, so it's been crazy and chaotic. Um, but you've caught me on a Saturday evening, um, and it's my practice to take Saturdays off completely. Um, oh, brilliant, kind of a, a digital Sabbath, <laughs> and oh. um, it's made all the difference. It's oh, that- made all the difference. So you've caught me at a great moment, rested and off having been offline for a day. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate you like chatting to me then on your day off as well. Ah. <laughs> uh, no, it's winding down. Uh, oh, and this you. is a, this is a joy. I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity and, um, it's so good. It's really so good to be in touch again. Um, yeah. I feel like this is one of those uh, friendships where you pick up the conversation where you left off, even if it was a decade ago. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, well, for our, the listeners, um, we've known each other for quite a few years from before I moved to Australia. So it's been yeah. quite a long time now. So. But um, yeah. I suppose uh, we need to start a bit about your background, Eve. Um, we can hear the American accent. So, um can you tell us a bit about your background, your childhood, um, where you grew up, a little bit about yourself? Good, good. Um, it's funny, I, I get the question a lot here because of the accent. Um, and uh, I actually had, I think, one of the most significant aha moments in my life. Um, it was the late nineties. I had taken my first trip to Ireland on a course. Um, and the course was, um, young in Ireland studying, um, archetypes, psychology, myth, mythology, really, you know, who we are and what we learn from ourselves and myth. Um, this was in the heyday of the work of Carol Pearson and, and Joseph Campbell, names that will probably mean little to folks who don't have a few gray hairs. Uh, but this was a, a time when in the in the culture in America, um, recovery, um, that that whole movement of um, finding your bliss um, was um, the talk of the talk shows. 
So uh, I had signed on for this course very serendipitously um, with the New York Young Society, uh, Young in Ireland. And it was the first night and we were in a beautiful hotel in, um, it was an old mansion in Cavan, which is very rural Ireland. Um, and the, the study that week was going to be a myth called the children of Lur. Um, and the point of studying psychology here in the archetypal psychology here in Ireland um, was that the myths, um, Celtic myth or, or the tawn here is very feminine. Um, when, when we think um, mythology, we think the Greek and Roman gods or the Norse gods, and um, it's, it's very dominated um, by um, masculine, mm-hmm. um, by, by a patriarchy. Um, but the myths here are not. They're all really strong women. Yes. So this moment in time was, in terms of my life, pivotal and serendipitous. And I'm coming back to your question, which was about the accent. Someone said, and these were all Americans, where are you from? Uh-huh. And from the first, for the first time in that period of my adult life, mom with young children, um, I was probably, um, I want to say 45. Yeah, about 45. Um I said, well, I was reared in New York, uh, but I, when I married, I moved and reared my family in Philadelphia. Okay. And the woman looked at me and said, do you like it there? Um, and there's a real power in curiosity and in storytelling and both the question, I think more in the question than the answer sometimes. And I had never thought about that before. I had never answered that way. And I had never thought about it that way. And more importantly, I'd never asked myself that question. Yeah. And for the first time, I, I don't know, I think I realized I had agency. I, you know, I I said, you know, I loved growing up in, in New York. I don't think I could live there now. I, Basically, I'm not rich enough to live there now, but in any event, um, it it made me go, oh. So I, I reared my family in, uh, in Philadelphia, and I have three daughters who are uh, now in their child-rearing years. They're actually your age, um, and, uh, now, uh, and now five very wee grandchildren. Oh, lovely. Yeah. 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 And my childhood was um, spent between uh, Westchester and Manhattan, uh, a bit of time in Rockland County when I was in uh, high school, uh, which would be all within maybe a 50 minute uh, drive of Manhattan. Uh, It was a privileged childhood to the extent that um, uh, at least from the outside looking in, and unfortunately, from the inside looking out, um, there there was a, a long history of, of um, trauma um, that I've spent a lifetime recovering from. Yeah. 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 
and have made it have made it my work um that uh, that that journey uh, it, it should be shorter for other people <laughs> i'm breaking the cycle for your own children and absolutely um and and i think more less about breaking the cycle than acknowledging it uh, i think that there's so much in the world that's it yeah, i don't know for lack of a better word not normal not okay um but we don't have language for it we don't have language for it yeah um i i listened um i think it was yesterday or the day before um to the daughter of the conductor leonard bernstein um she wrote a book um famous father girl i think it's called anyway she she uh, i listened to a talk on the book and she talked about and we have the same parallels in terms of when we came of age yeah and she talked about the things that we didn't have language for um her her father ha- uh, was bisexual i think there's a movie out about him now um and there was no language for that her parents divorced or separated and were planning to divorce they didn't in the end but and there was no language for that and that podcast and to be honest your questions made me think about the stories we have to tell so that this time doesn't seem so scary it's just an invitation to come up with the language to talk about it yeah, yeah. i think it's definitely improving like from like when you were a child when i was a child there was definitely no language but now with social media and things it's definitely more in the open and like i know like definitely in ireland going up there was no such thing as therapy and things you know and talking about your feelings and that kind of thing i think in america there was maybe more going to therapy was more of a thing was it well it's it's interesting because i in in my various career stages i i trained um in the very early 80s as a what we would call in america a career counselor right and that that was a mainstream job description um and so when i came the state of the economy in 2008 when i arrived in ireland was exactly the same worldwide recession. Yeah. There are no jobs out there. Here's how we're going to reinvent what you used to think your job title is was so that you could start your own business or at least get paid to do freelance work or this a whole idea of quote unquote pivot. But counseling in Ireland, no, you have to call yourself a coach. Okay. and then more importantly there wasn't an understanding and you know it's very easy to be arrogant or condescending and say you know why uh, in a judging way um until i really came to understand that culturally at least when it came to personal development the um when i started to talk to people about the work that i thought i could do or i wanted to do cuz here i am 
in this new place and time, a reluctant entrepreneur. Um, I, they, they would tell me, oh, you mean like, and then they would rattle off these coaches. Um, Jack Black, I think, was one of them. And another was um, Bob Proctor. It, people who had very, again, I, I would say in a, in a more masculine energy, yeah. processes of coaching that were very didactic. This is how you need to be in the world as opposed to let's help you emerge confidently into who you could be in the world. Um, and I had really had to come to appreciate that life where I was in this border region was post-conflict. You know, in those 20 years that Americans were reading the likes of Joseph Campbell and Carol Pearson and Melody Beatty's Codependent No More and Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way and Recovery is on Oprah and Phil, mm -hmm. you all were fighting a war here. Yeah. And more importantly, the way we deal with conflict in Ireland, again, a post-conflict society for hundreds of years is whatever you say, say nothing. And whatever you do, don't talk about your feelings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so, all so the cultural, the cultural piece was that I was catapulted back 20 years. I was catapulted back 20 years. And and again, another kind of aha moment. And I talk about it in a in a TEDx Belfast uh women talk that I did in 2012 was to have a trip to the, the butcher shop to ask for something I wanted and have an exchange that catapulted me back to my childhood when you will do what I say, <laughs> not what you want to do. You know, you don't expect to have your aha moments, you know, at a, at a, at a meet and greet in a in a hotel when someone says where are you from uh -huh. or more importantly when the butcher says um i was asking for a cut of meat a brisket and the butcher said to me um sure what would you be wanting that for uh -huh. <laughs> i was like all excited my children are coming and it's their favorite their favorite dinner your uh -huh. children will just have to learn to eat irish okay. <laughs> And for a second, like if you had been coming to dinner, you would have gotten what he wanted to sell me. Like, but because it was my kids, I stood my ground, uh, you know, in a, in a, um, in a nice enough way, but insistent, yeah, uh, kind of assertively, um, and said, well, I'll learn to eat Irish. My guests will learn to eat Irish, but my children will have what they've always had. I'll be in at two o'clock tomorrow to pick it up. Yeah. And the woman that I was with, an Irish American woman, walked out of the store with me and chastised me okay. and said, if you're going to live here, you're going to have to learn to act Irish. Yeah. And first of all, I was... 53 years old and not used to being <laughs> chastised because it was that 
chastising tone that we that we use here and that even in my family of origin you know they that was used um i i walked all the way home it was only a five or six minute walk thinking what does it mean to act irish oh not assert myself not ask for what i want not feel entitled to to get what i'm willing to pay for yeah no 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 yeah. they need the 12 step program i've just had it for the last <laughs> yeah. years yeah so that again another one of those moments that that was foundational for me yeah. and also another thing is use humor to like deflect you know your feelings as well and that that deflect the hurt to use humor to kind of hide the pain as well yeah, yeah. and and again um i find in in both personally and in my own work we all think um I there was a very wise woman in my life many years ago who I was I was whinging I was I was whinging <laughs> and and I uh and I must have said something like I just wish I could have a normal family and she had one of two responses to my whinges that day it was eve normal is a setting on a dryer yeah. get over it <laughs> like there's no such thing but her other her the other point that she would always make was you are not terminally unique you are not the only person who has ever felt that way and here in ireland we have a way of rearing children and i had this aha moment um when i was um i was doing a course um um counseling for special populations it was a course and a master's program called counseling for special populations um you know one of the things here in ireland is we're a pretty homogeneous society in america when you train as a coach or a counselor you don't know if your client base is going to be coming from very ethnically diverse backgrounds because the culture is very ethnically diverse and so the the textbook for this course was um ethnicity and family therapy well is when school starts and you get your new books it's very exciting to start looking through them and i'm all excited to find out about the irish and the italians and my husband's ethnic group when i you know when i'm going through my brand new textbook and the first one i <laughs> open up is the irish and one of the entries was the irish chastise their children with shame and humor yeah got that i was suddenly catapulted back to a moment with my father um i was meeting my father and brother for dinner in a restaurant um i had just had my hair done and i was feeling you know like you feel good when you walk out of the salon and i uh walk in to dinner and my father and brother are waiting for me at the end of a bar and my father looks at me in this way that he had of looking up over the top of his glasses and you knew the chastising was coming yeah and he it was i don't know the 70s and i had just had a perm 
And he looked at me and he said, my, don't you look like the ass end of a poodle. (laughs) There was the message. There was everything. The hair was blown out straight for the next several months. I got the message. And then I went to the Italians and then I went to my husband's ethnic group. And guess what? Nobody even chastised children. In fact, in the culture he came up in, children were almost revered. Yeah. So, you know, there's so much for us to learn that's not about finding out what's wrong with us. It's just finding out how we were programmed. Yes. Yeah. So your father was Irish? My father was Irish. My mother, first generation born in America. Yeah. And my mother was Italian, first generation born in America. Right. And that was a very volatile, um, it was very, and I, and I have to laugh uh, because much like um, cross uh, sectarian marriages here in uh, that I've come to understand in Northern Ireland, um, uh, it, it was like Catholic and Protestant. Uh, right. This was a mixed marriage. They were both Roman Catholic, but Italian Catholic was very different than Irish Catholic. And oh my goodness, this was, Scandalous, scandalous. Oh, okay. <laughs> Even more so years later when I came to came to know, I did not as a young child know my mother had been married before, but my father had also been married before. And so scandalous on so many levels. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, was it scandalous back in the home countries? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so. Fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's there's always a story and 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 they those are the stories people keep secret and yet the story really informs what's actually going on in a household and what the children in the household feel but no one has language for yes and we scare children or at we at, at the very least we make them unsure of how to find their way in a world they don't understand or they don't have language for because the children i, I remember in a group um it was a family counseling course uh, the professor saying if you want to know what's going on in a family, ask the youngest child. Yes. They're the truth tellers. Um, but then it gets socialized out of it, out of us. Um, we come up with different language. So in an alcoholic household, the youngest child may say, you know, mommy or daddy's behavior changes after she's been drinking or whatever language they use to describe that. But a couple of years later, oh, we'll we'll be quiet. Daddy's very tired. Yeah. Or oh, mommy has a short temper. We we're just you know we're gonna walk on tippy toes. Yeah. We we socialize the truth out of we acculturate children to not recognize the truth. Yeah. Um, no less feel it or act on it or or say it out loud. Yeah, or they, they kind of learn to toe the line, really, of the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a wonder. Um, we just don't, 
it's a wonder I was looking for a normal family and that we we don't just lead with the fact that nobody, <laughs> nobody had that ideal. Like everybody is is finding their way or or faking it on on some level. Um, I think we 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 would be kinder and more gentle with each other if yeah. we understood. Yeah, if we understood how much there is uh, for us to to show empathy for. Yeah, well, I, there's no such thing as a normal family, is there? Like every family has its histories and its stories and its goings on, really. As you yeah. say, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, as you were saying, um, we're as something we've got in common is we're like both mothers to three beautiful daughters and and your grandmother too. And like parenting isn't easy and like it can be really confronting and like things like postnatal depression and like things, stuff like that's that's not talked about, like and like mental health. And I remember, like I had postnatal depression, and like, in Ireland, and it's just not talked about. And um, but you, like I, was so lucky to have you at that time in my life because, um, to talk to about it because you were so wise and supportive for me when my girls were little. And I was wondering if you have any words of wisdom and that you can share with other like parents who are currently in the trenches with little children who are in that time at the minute? Yeah, you. every young woman needs a crone in her life. And I'm, I am delighted now, um, just around the time you were having your girls, there was one very um, outspoken young woman dealing with, um, we call it, um, in America, it's postnatal depression. Um, uh, and she made a a practice of, you know, she was on Twitter, she was on Facebook. I want to say Lisa Murray, Murphy, maybe, but in any event, she was on Twitter, she was on Facebook. And I remember saying, thank God, because um, we met, uh, when I first came and I was, my office was in, uh, was in Newry and I was running two groups. Um, uh, they were what we would have called in the old days support groups, but two groups, networking groups, I think was networking was new, you know, and that was something that was a way of life in the States. Um, but, um, but was, was certainly new to, um, uh, to life here. And the one group met in the evening and it was women that work uh-huh. and another that met <clears throat> during the day uh, and it was moms that work. And, you know, just kind of in terms of my uh, how to become uh, acclimated here, um, I, it, I would have called it moms that work, but I was informed that it was moms that work. In any okay. event, yes. Um, <laughs> in any event, I I was taken with the fact that there was this group of women like yourself who had started businesses, who were running them from the back of their cars 
with their carpools, you know, running here and running there. And the only supports for women in business in place in Northern Ireland at the time um, was a, you know, a very powerful group called Women in Business. And if you weren't going off to work every day in your perfectly quaffed uh, and, and set out appearance in high heels and to an office, there was no support available. You know, uh-huh. I was dealing with people who had nursing babies and uh, sneaker trainers, you know, running from here to there um, with amazing businesses and ways of being in the world. Um, and I was I was doing that in the context of what had been done for me. And that was I survived because I had older truth telling women in my life. And they would say things like, at the birth of my oldest daughter, um, my dearest friend, um, who was my mother's age, uh, well, maybe a little younger, she was 20 years older than I, and she had had her first child at about 18 or 19. And she she looked at me, uh, having visited when the baby was very little, handed the baby, handed Jenny back to me and said, okay, now think long and hard about what you can give, how much you can give. At each stage, think long and hard about what is enough because that child has been programmed to come into the world and, and believe nothing is ever enough. You have to draw the line or you'll have nothing left to give. Yeah. You know, every all the other parenting advice was totally focused on the child's needs. I had the equivalent of a mom mothering me in that role. And I think the most important thing young mothers can do is go out and find mothers. Yes. You know, which is sage advice for a woman who is 3,000 miles away from all three of her her daughters who are young mothers. Yeah. And I have to say, they have the gift <clears throat> of all of, they now have the gift of all of my peers, my friends who help me rare them. Um, and they all have many mothers in their lives, as well as um, their husband's mothers, all three of whom are very active caregivers in my grandchildren's lives. Um, so as as much as it has been my loss, um, I also think that the way my girls were reared with a circle of what my youngest daughter um, uh, at her bat mitzvah called her other mothers. Um, you know, we, we raised a glass to these other women who modeled other ways of being in the world. You know, a, one is a doctor. One is a woman who had a public relations business. Um, um, uh, the, another was, um, I'm trying to remember, um, uh, a realtor, 
um, you know, they, they had just jobs outside the home. They, they had different ways of mothering. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so I think every young mother, uh, needs an other mother or at least the very least a crone in her life. I just like to talk about something also that's not talked about enough. And that is uh, perimenopause and the menopause, because it's such a major event in a woman's life that can go on for years and years, like hormonal fluctuations, all kinds of health issues. And like women are just expected to just get on with life, work and parent and do everything else as normal. And we're medically gaslit to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just, you know, oh, you're too fat or, you know, it's just tiredness. It's all perfectly normal. And when we bring like perfectly valid health issues to our GPs or medical professionals. So what are your thoughts on this? And again, have you got any words of wisdom for women going through this? Um, I, you know, I was talking about that kind of advice to young mothers piece, have a crone in your life. Um, and I think the most important thing that I can offer is that at the timing, um, at, at the timing of the wisdom imparted to me or, or things that I put myself in the way of learning quite accidental, you know, this is, um, the author, Scott Peck the road less traveled talks about serendipity as being little miracles and uh however it was that i found my way um to originally the new jersey young society um when you uh when you're a coaching or a counseling professional in the states you do a certain number of credits to uh, keep up your qualification and um I was going to these lectures um, uh, with the New Jersey Young Society. I was in Philadelphia. It was just across the water in Trenton. Um, someday I will have to do a whole exploration of my life and borders. But in any event, um, I uh, got a I got the notice about the Young in Ireland, but then another another lecture. Uh, by an amazing woman called Jean Boland. And this would have been at the time that I would have been starting perimenopause. Mm -hmm. um, and her original book on that life stage, um, uh, really, it's brilliant. It's called Crossing to Avalon. Okay. Um, she has another one, which is lovely, uh, called uh, Crohn's Don't Wine writing this time <laughs> and 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 the point and her point from this archetypal um place was embracing the life stage identifying the crone is to own the fact that it is for women it has the potential to be the most powerful Point and stage in our lives because when that early period of fertility and menses is coming to an end, all of the creative energy can go into what we choose to put it into. 
And the idea of embracing the crone, and, and we see it in uh, the beauty and the beast, the uh, the young prince not recognizing the beauty of the crone, the wisdom of what was within the crone at the door, you know, is a very powerful metaphor for both how we're not seen by men in society, but how we don't see ourselves as aging women. And one of the things that has made me very excited in the last 10 years here are a number of coaches and counselors who are speaking about this, who are doing programs and lectures, and most importantly, bringing it into policy changes. So I think the first, you know, my, my first um, uh, kind of bit of wisdom to share is embrace it. You know, we get all of these messages about uh, being invisible, you know, as we as women come into middle age and things. That does not have to be the case. You know, I, I can remember when many of the uh, my peers were turning 50 um, and these very beautiful women uh, were on, you know, featured on the cover of Vogue and this and that, you know, you you don't have to be ignored. But these were also the people with the resources to have the work done or live the lifestyles that be, they were aging very well. You know, yeah. we, we, still, we still have real problems embracing the changes in ourselves and in our bodies. Um, and, and that's work that has to be done, work that has to be done psychologically, culturally, educationally. Um, but what I what I can tell you is that I stepped off a plane into an entirely new life at 53 years old. I would not have had the resources or I would not have had the emotional resources to do that when I was distracted by all of those things in my younger life, you yeah. know, it, it, and it's not necessarily marriage and children. It's when we're developing careers. It's when we're having to uh, take care of the business of maturing. Yeah. Um, which is why, which is why I'm passionate about it never being too late to begin again. Um, and when I say begin again, it's not um, uh, an age or a career or a this or a that. It's a stage because at every single life stage, we're confronted with change that we have not yet developed skills for. So, you know, when we were talking about um, children adapting to family situations, when we're talking about childhood trauma or any, any experience, we come up with survival skills and we get really good at them. But when we're no longer in that situation, you know, so you take someone like myself who oldest child survived the crazy childhood and household really well, 
um, all the things that made it possible for me to survive, the things I numbed, the things I ignored, the things I made humor and made into humor, the stories I told in a funny way. Um, no, those were not the skills I needed for my 20s. Those were not the skills I needed to rear adolescent daughters. Those were not the skills I needed for this life stage. So how do we evolve our survival skills to what I call our thrival skills for this life stage? Yeah. So whether it's being around and we need tribes, we need families of, I call them families of choice versus families of origin. Um, and those families of choice need to, as I was saying with my daughters, other mothers need to have peers. We need to create the villages that help us rear our children, but also help us evolve. Um, and it's about support. I, I use a hashtag with most of my writing and my practice. Don't go it alone. Yeah, that's that's not a hashtag. That's a way of life. Um, so it's that surrounding yourself with people who then, and, and, and this to me is the most important part, bear witness to their experience. We don't need teachers and we don't need evangelists. We need truth tellers. <laughs> we need the kind of people who are going to say, I'm having an awful day because I was up all night sweating. Yeah. <laughs> because somebody in the earliest stages of perimenopause doesn't realize they're not getting enough sleep because they haven't necessarily associated the sweating or the restlessness or the anxiety with hormones. How do you do it, that though? If you like, say, for example, if you, are a people pleaser if you've grown up like within a, a traumatic childhood or whatever and you've become a people pleaser and you are like your natural state is like a fawn and you attract people who are probably not necessarily the best type of people for you how do you find people who are going to be a really good kind of fit like in your tribe you're going to be actually there for you so it's not just you doing all the running and you know, being there for other people? How do you find people who are, you know, good for you as well? I I wish I had a, a, a kind of more universal kind of answer for that. I can only bear witness to what worked for me. And I, I talk about it as making ourselves available to the help we need. And in my case, it was accidental. It was that, um, it was that uh, the courses that I was taking um, in coaching and counseling and in another uh, course, employee counseling, I got an assignment. Um, and, and again, it's important to step back and observe how we are in certain situations. Um, and I have long known procrastination was a strong suit for me. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I'm grateful to now understand that procrastination is nothing but fear. Yeah. Whatever we're going to get out, positive or negative of the circumstance, we're putting it off because we're afraid full stop. But in any event, this course, this employee counseling course, you know, uh, I don't know how it, how it works at universities uh, here, uh, but stateside, you would know going in that the requirements were an exam or an exam and a paper and this and that. And there was only going to be one paper that you were going to be graded on for this entire course. And the assignment was given in the first week of the course. The semester is three months. And the assignment was based on the fact that in employee situations uh, and the importance of employee counseling is to recognize that one of the biggest um, uh, difficulties in terms of productivity is drug and alcohol abuse. And so the assignment was for each of the people in this class to go to to Al-Anon two AA and two NA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and Al-Anon is for the kind of the codependent uh, family members of people with addiction. Mm -hmm. Six meetings, and then write a paper about your experience. First off, it astounds me that people can be qualified on the island of Ireland in coaching and counseling and never have attended a 12-step meeting. I procrastinated to the point where I did those six meetings and wrote the paper in under a week because it's the end of the semester and it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Years ago, before rehabs, um, when AA in the 30s and 40s was being founded, the the founders determined or really surmised that the way to get sober was to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. We're going to immerse you in this process. Well, trust me, six meetings in under a week was a 90 and 90 for me. And I started that paper by recognizing for the very first time that I was the granddaughter of three alcoholics, the daughter of two alcoholics, and the sister of three alcoholics. And I only had three siblings. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. But what came with the aha moment was the Al-Anon meeting that I had stepped into, or for those uh, who don't identify, you know, as being adjacent to an addiction, uh, codependent uh, uh, anonymous meetings, mm -hmm. what I walked into was salvation. Every Tuesday morning, probably for the better part of the next 20 years, um, I attended this tribe of wise people, largely women in Al-Anon rooms, but there are men and there are men-only meetings for Al-Anon. Um, but I got the tools and the tribe that I needed who bore witness to quit your whinging, nobody's got a normal family. I have to say, I really, really appreciated the question, you know, how do we, how do we create a tribe? Um, because as I mentioned, when I first came, came to Ireland, this idea of coaching and counseling um, was foreign. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the first things I looked to do was to put those supports that I had in place in the States in place for me here. So the first thing I looked for was an Al-Anon meeting. Uh Um, And there was one that was not far from where I lived, but it was not a, it was not a good meeting. Um, And I don't, I don't know how to say to people to judge it, um, but you have to know you feel safe and comfortable. Yeah. And if there's anything gossipy or crosstalk uh, in 12-step in language, we would say that the group was not well run according to the traditions. Everyone talks about 12 steps, but there are 12 traditions. Yeah. Um, so the, the nearest excellent Al-Anon meetings to me were 45 or 50 minutes away. I came in November. Winters are very hard here. Um, we don't get a lot of snow, uh, but you'd be driving in the dark late at night on back roads. And I, I so missed it. And I think in many ways that catalyzed um, bringing a, a book uh, and, a, and a way of being into, my, into the practice of my work, which was to use a book called The Artist's Way. Yeah. which is a creative recovery program, 12 weeks of recovering a sense of safety, recovering a sense of integrity, recovering a sense of faith. Um, while no one, ta- I've not heard in any of the talks I've heard Cameron do or the author, Julia Cameron, or any of the people I've heard talk about it, I've never heard them put it this way. But it is a 12-step recovery program that's not set out that way. Mm-hmm. I originally started doing the groups because folks did not understand what I meant by career counseling or career coaching. Oh, you're going to get me a job. No, I'm going to help position you to where you can sell your skills, talk about your skills, convince yourself of your skills so that you can find uh, find uh, ways to make money, whether it's freelance or starting a business or whatever else. But what I was doing was selling an educational program, this mm-hmm. artist way group, that was really a therapeutic process. And uh, one of the one of the you know one of the things that you learn or I learned in Al-Anon was we the survival skill that we learned coming up was how to survive unhealthy relationships. And inevitably We survived unhealthy relationships by getting into other people's heads, knowing what they needed, and being the people pleaser that didn't get in trouble. Because remember, we're not powerful, we're not in charge, we're not in control, so we keep people happy to survive. And that survival skill needs to be honored well done, Eve. You got out alive. Yeah. 
to my adult self, I have to say, that's holding you back. That's what I learned in Al-Anon rooms. And in now working with people in groups over 12 weeks, I have this brilliant woman's language, a book that came out of her own uh, recovery process, um, describing all of the traps that we used to hear about when folks would share in Al-Anon meetings. So case in point, the codependence, you know, the unhealthy relationships. Cameron does a whole section on crazy makers. Do you recognize yourself here? We invite these crazy makers and another chapter section, she calls them poisonous playmates. Okay. And she also teaches us to be on the lookout for wet blankets. You know, the people who undermine us when we're going off on a creative tangent or whatever. So, so all of the things that I, that I learned that I experienced in this tribe of people who were recovering from their survival skills um, and, and recovery it really needs to be addressed from a place of strength. We choose recovery. Um, I, in, in the artist's way and in these programs, I have the capacity to share that experience of those 12-step meetings um, without, I think, the, the kind of judgment or the whatever that gets implied when I, I would say, you know, you're having trouble with such and such, maybe you should go to a CODA meeting or this or that and the other thing. Mm-hmm. So what I focus on is creative recoveries um, uh, because it's, it holds the wisdom and the experience and the language um, that we all need um, to throw off the survival skills that got us to where we are but are slowing us down in terms of where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what you're saying is like our childhoods and like everything kind of like interlinks into our confidence and our careers and everything. So we need to be working on everything and it will build our confidence in all aspects of our lives. And yeah. So- we were talking like we had a chat last week and we were talking about how we kind of lose our confidence like during times like menopause and perimenopause a bit as well. Um, so like the artist way that like using that like 12 steps and things that can help us build our confidence as well. Would you agree? So at the, the, I think it's called the temple at Delphi, the this kind of site of wisdom in ancient Greece, you know, uh, on, on, on it in translation is know thyself. The single most important thing that we can do is to know ourselves. You know, the place that we can come to is that we can gain an understanding of ourselves But we can't do that alone. We can't do that in a contemplative way. I need to have you reflect back to me what you're experiencing. 
I don't know who I am being in the world until I experience myself in the world, which is what that power of group process is, um, the power of, you know, well-reared uh, children in, in loving families. They don't know that they're not important. <laughs> they they don't have confidence problems you know we when you know there's a there's an there's an expression in 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 12 step rooms called fake it till you make it act as if act as if you're confident until you get there but some of us didn't have models for what confident women at various life stages look like so the company we keep is going to be the company that informs the quality of our lives. The quality of my life stage now, which given the arthritis and all of the other downsides of living this long, um, could arguably be not wonderful. But the most powerful and significant women in my life were women who thrived in this life stage. I, I learned how to live alone and how to, um, to create a more contemplative place in the world from a woman I called Nana early. She was my half-sister's mother, my father's first wife. I learned activism and and passion you know from from another mary early uh, an aunt i i learned how to nurture um from an uh, from a cousin by marriage who was 20 years my senior who would write me a letter uh, i maybe six or eight times a year but they always seemed to land there were glimmers for me. They always seemed to land when it was important for me to know that somebody was thinking about me yeah, or that somebody had something to say to me. I, I had the gift of these very powerful older women who modeled this life stage. I'm sorry that I didn't have, um, I didn't know what was coming in the early stages of motherhood from older women but they did appear and it's, it's inviting those people into our lives. That's so important. Yeah. Yeah. And like in this day and age, um, it's being able to be open and talk about all the good stuff and the bad stuff and all the stages and not being like hiding about like the bad stuff, you know, about the, periods and the hormones and the you know when you do have like the hard days with your kids and the teenager stage and the good you know the good stuff with your teenagers and you know it's it's all learning and journeying together and t like telling each other the stories and not hiding it really and putting on the brave face and the masks and you know just accepting like the good and the bad and you know, being there yeah. for each other, you know. Uh, having a place to be seen. Yeah. And to be supported. Yeah. 
um, just being able to tell the truth. Um, Without judgment. Without judgment. And we have to create those safe places for ourselves. Um, And and I think the, like, you know, again, one of the most powerful aha moments was having a, a therapist listen to me and copping on to what my self-talk sounded like. And she responded very sternly with, would you let anyone talk to Jenny, my oldest, like that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, at some point, you know, self-care is a lovely term, but at some point, are we going to learn to properly mother ourselves? Are we going to be as supportive and kind and gentle and loving with ourselves um, as we were with on our best days with our children? Because we also have to own the fact that as mothers, we had bad days. Yeah. Um, So, so yes. Yeah. And with that negative self-critical voice, if you've got it, you're not going to be able to get rid of it, but it's about turning down the volume really, and being able to quiet and and have another voice that tells you that you are doing your best, you are doing enough, you're you're trying your best, and reminding yourself of all the good stuff that you are doing, and the glimmers, and you're actually not doing a bad job at life. You've got your good moments as well, as well as the stuff that you could improve on. Yeah. (laughs) We're all flawsome. There's there's great power. Um, We don't hear as much about them now as we did maybe 10 or 15 years ago, but there's great power in affirmations. And um, case in point, you know, I, I, I'm listening to myself sound like she really gets this stuff. But what I, I, this is a work in progress. I only get this on my good days. You know, there is self-doubt. There is a lack of self-confidence on, on the tough days. And um, I, in, uh, nine, in 1991, checked myself into a treatment program for an eating disorder. Uh, second to my move here, or maybe right up with my move here, it was the bravest thing I have ever done. And I left 30 days on a, it was just like a rehab for a drug or alcohol or whatever. The substance I would, I numb out with is food. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a lifelong battle with food addiction. You know, I have to be honest about what that relationship is like. Um, and I was given an affirmation while I was in treatment to say every day, morning and and night. And it was simple. I love and accept myself the way that I am today. I am enough. Yeah. I am an oldest child. I follow authority reasonably well when I'm humbled enough to know no choice here, got to do this. 
And I left there in 1992 saying that affirmation as a morning prayer and an evening prayer every day. It was damn well near 10 years before I believed it. Really believed, you know, like you're talking about not hearing those voices turn down that tone. Well, until I turned up that tone. And it was another four or five years before I acted on it. Yeah. So it's that constant attention to the fact that we need to properly parent ourselves. When when people choose, you know, whether it's a formal recovery program, they choose a creative recovery. When we do that, we make a commitment to show up consciously, intentionally show up for ourselves. And it's hard work. Yeah. And and an affirmation, I am enough, is helpful. Um, but also a commitment to whatever ritual or practice, whatever glimmer you can set, you know, as, as a practice for yourself every day. Um, that's what gets you there in the end. Yeah. By degrees, by very baby steps, um, maintaining that forward momentum. Yeah. It's learning like something I find difficult that you have to love yourself first. You know, the whole putting on your mask, your like your your uh, your own oxygen mask first before you can help anybody mm-hmm. else. Like that's always been my thing. You've always, like you've always had to put everybody else's needs as more important than your own, but it's not actually true. You have to love yourself first. And I'm still working on that, but it is true because you can't actually love anybody else properly unless you love yourself first, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really difficult and, to learn. <laughs> and how many of us got that message? You know, I, I'm pretty sure they, they you know, I, the midwives and the nurses all convey this message, but we don't necessarily hear it. Um, you come home with that newborn and the and the the wisdom shared is sleep when the baby sleeps. Yeah. Don't do the dishes, don't do the cleanup, don't do the this or the that because you need your rest. You need to sleep when the baby sleeps. That's the advice we should be taking. Yeah. We need to to store up that energy. We can't give what we don't have. Um and, and I think the single most important thing we can do is ban the term fine. How are you? Not fine from our vocabulary. Yeah. Exactly. It's not honest. No. Well, that's it. When, how do you answer how are you anyway? People say how are you, but they don't actually want to know how you are. It's just a thing it's just like they just want to say good how are you you know it's just a phrase isn't it really but it's not they don't really want to know actually how are you (laughs) well but but one of the things I don't think we understand is that we can change the nature every conversation is transactional how are you is a placeholder people don't really want to know yeah I can train you 
not to ask me that question by answering with a question. Do you really want to know? Or are we just being polite? Yeah. There's there's a way in which we can take charge. Um, and it doesn't have to be rude. And it, you know, that butcher shop conversation uh, resulted in uh, years later, I, or a couple of years later, I found out that I was actually known as the cheeky American woman with the little white dog. Okay. <laughs> so on some level, you have to be okay with that. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> he didn't mess with you again, did he? Well, and he and I, you know, I went back, I got a great piece of meat and I still do business. I have moved from the town, but I would still do business there. Uh-huh. Um, because it also takes understanding that he was acting in his best interest. He needs to sell what's in the case. I don't have to take it. Yeah. And there was, we both walked away uh, with a win. Yeah. Because I told the truth. I can't tell you how many people tell me they didn't do business, told me they didn't do business there because he never gives me what I want. No, you didn't insist on what you wanted. If we recognize things as transactional, it doesn't have to be confrontational. That's a good lesson to learn. Yeah. So um, could you just tell us a little uh, bit more about um, why you made the move to Ireland? I actually don't know. I learned in hindsight um, things about it. I had been here two, just over two years when I made the decision that I was staying. And I moved the contents of my house uh, here. And so I was back in uh, Philadelphia and and uh, emptying out the attic. And I stumbled on a, uh, a little box of file folders. And one of them just had my name on it. And mm-hmm. um, I opened it up and there was a business-sized envelope in it that just had my name on the front of it. And I was catapulted back to 1982 when I was working at a career counseling firm. And in many ways, this um, story is what helped me find my way to Ireland. I, that, that wonderful woman, that wonderful crone in my life who took me under her wing. I was living in Rhode Island uh, for a few years uh, around the time my daughter was born, when I was first married and when my daughter was born. And I was working at a job I hated, and it's about two months before the baby is due. And my friend worked for this career counseling firm, and she wanted to try out a sales position. She was an admin. She could make more money at sales, but she didn't want to give up her admin job. So she said to me, would you take my job for the next six or eight weeks, and I'll try out sales? Sure. And you're not supposed to use a Myers-Briggs, which is a personality indicator. You're not supposed to use it for hiring decisions, but this career counseling firm did. Mm -hmm. And so she gave me the Myers-Briggs and it came back and she goes, "Uh, they'll never let you have the job if this is, you know, what your profile is. Answer the questions as if, and she told me how to be another way in the world. And I did another Myers-Briggs and I got the letters that I needed for the um, for the admin job. I go off. I have a baby. Um, we move back to Philadelphia. Um, we move to Philadelphia, 
and um, my my ex husband, my my kid's dad, was um, doing his uh, medical boards, his medical exam, and I took off with with Jenny, who at the time was maybe five months old, six months old, to go visit my mother in New Mexico, my best friend in Seattle, so we can be out of the house and he can stress about his exam all by himself. Mm-hmm. And I'm on my way home after three weeks and he calls and he says, the company that I have been working for in Rhode Island bought the Philadelphia franchise and they want you to come be the administrator. And I hadn't intended to go back to work. Oh. I didn't really want to go back to work with baby. And I said, Ugh, what will I do for daycare? <laughs> he said, oh, I've already arranged it. Oh. So I accept the job that I hadn't applied for, whatever, I start. About three months in, the senior counselor comes to me and said, can I Can I see you? I am sure I am going to get fired. And I go in and a, a dear gentleman said to me, so tell me, what's your Myers-Briggs? And I said, oh, oh, the real one or the one I took to get this job? <laughs> he said, that's what I thought. I'll see you every Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock. And he took it upon himself to become my counselor okay, um, and to teach me to be a counselor. And his first assignment on the first day was to hand me a pencil. And he held it out and I took it with my right hand, my dominant hand. And he said, put it in your left hand. And I did. And he said, hands me a pad of paper. I said at the top of the page, write where you see yourself, where you want to be in 25 or 30 years. Linda, I almost threw the pencil and the pad at him. I did not want to be here. I I didn't want this job. I have a baby. I blah, 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 blah. So I write what I write down. He looks at it. He folds it up. He puts it in an envelope. And he said, put this away somewhere and have a look at it in 10 or 15 years and see if you're on your way. I never looked at that until I was packing up the house to move the rest of my belongings two years after I had moved here. And it said to live and work abroad. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So... The opportunity presented itself. I had been coming on this course um, each year for four or five years. We would study a different myth in a different part of Ireland. Um, All women, uh, Grace and Mayo, Bridget and Cooley, uh, just amazing. The Finn stories and Antrim, I I just had an amazing experience of this place. Mm -hmm. An opportunity presented itself and I didn't say no. So, so yeah, just, I think we can put ourselves adjacent to or in the way of good things when we become ready to be available, to be seen. Sometimes just don't say no, just go with it. Yeah. Never know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still here. How how long have you been in Ireland now? This is this coming up on the 16th year. Wow. Could you just um, tell us uh, a little bit more about your um, business empowering change? Just let our listeners know a little bit because you are worldwide. So if anybody would be keen to avail of your services, just let them know what you do and what you can provide. 
So at one point here, I was working uh, with uh, young tech entrepreneurs, uh, teaching them to present. That was how I started. Um, uh, really confident skills, uh, but also uh, we're socialized here, not to put our head above the parapet, not to get above our station. Uh, whatever you say, say nothing. Um, and so an awful lot of what I was doing was teaching uh, presentation skills um, and then helping people start businesses in this in this recessionary time. And that evolved into taking on individual uh, clients for career development work. Um, and now most all of my work is in groups um, and I run uh, artists way groups. Um, a group called It's Never Too Late to Begin Again, also a 12-week group with a memoir aspect to it. Um, there are uh, groups for storytelling, where over the course of 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks, whatever you decide, um, we explore where we were or where our families were at various places in recent history. So, for instance... Um, if I look at the years between the late 40s and the early 50s before I was born, and I place my parents' experience in that, I have an awful lot of information about uh, what shaped me. It only occurred to me in really as an outgrowth of one of these workshops. My father, I was born in 55. My father had a massive coronary um, in 56. Um, and the reality is for the entire of my life, I had a father who was facing death, who was, who believed he was dying. Suddenly the way that he used to talk to us, the way that he used to try and teach us, and it just made so much more sense. So so I, I run these workshops as a means of having people explore their stories so they can begin to know themselves. And so the, the practice came about empowering change. <laughs> I want you to embark on a journey that I embarked on, but I want you to get there quicker than I did. It's essentially what it is. And personally, professionally, and civically, because I believe that if we heal personally, we have healthier work relationships, we choose better work for ourselves, congruent with our values, confluent with the way we are in the world. And civically, I think when we model healthy ways of being, we can demand the people in the communities around us have healthier ways of being in the world. So that was the ambition. And I've been plugging away for the last 16 years. Oh, sounds brilliant. Um, so where's the best place people can find you? So the website is empowering-change.com. Okay. Um, there's a mighty network where if you're not on Facebook and you're looking for a place that's a little more private, we have an ongoing conversation. It's empowering-change.mn.co. Okay. Um, but you can get there from empowering-change.com. You can find me on Facebook and it's Eve Early, E-A-R-L-E-Y. 
on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Um, and it's really an invitation to join a conversation. Oh. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. I will put all of those on the podcast bio as well so people can find you easily. Thank you. Well, as I said, um, Eve, you are genuinely inspiring and it doesn't matter what age or stage we are at. So I'm just wondering, what are your plans or goals for the future? Keep at, uh, keep at this work of bearing witness. Um, it's... It, it, I can't even begin to describe um, what a joy it's been to have arrived at this place in spite of myself or in spite of my best efforts. And to be honest with you, it, it, it's only in the last decade that I have felt, um, felt that I have been creating a, the life that I'm leading as opposed to reacting to my circumstances. Um, and I, you know, I love that uh, creation and reaction are anagrams of the same letters. Okay. And it's this reminder to myself um, that each day I get to choose. And um, it, it's, it's so important because I think that, you know, going back to what you were describing as the way we came up. And we were always in a reactive mode. And it's not until we decide to really kind of seize that that moment, seize our power, um, that that things begin to change. You know, and, and I I see that in you. I was so personally sad when you decided on your relocation. And yet what was clear was that it was in service of your children and their needs um, and yours for this fresh start in a culture that would be um, that would be healthier. It's that those moments when we're faced with choices and we can be reactive or we can create a new life for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. That leads us on nicely to glimmers. So I'll just describe what glimmers are for our listeners. They are micro moments of joy or calm that release the feel-good feel chemicals and hormones like serotonin into our bodies that help us to regulate our overwhelmed nervous system and make our survival brains feel safe they can be anything from like a gorgeous sunset to just sitting with our dog or our cat on our knee with a lovely cup of tea and a good book. So Eve, what would you say are your glimmers in everyday life? Um, one of them is a comeuppance. Um, I was about, um, I don't know, 20 and visiting my father uh, at his home in, in Brewster. And there was this big, big window out into the garden. And there were always bird feeders in the garden. And he could watch still and attentively for what seemed like hours 
God knows I was 19, hyperactive, might have been 20 minutes, a half an hour, but it seemed like hours. Um, and he took such delight and joy in watching those birds. And I remember thinking, how geriatric. <laughs> so my comeuppance is the bird feeder <laughs> in the garden. <laughs> and my my having slowed down um, enough to really take moments of joy when I can even stand at the window with the cup of tea mm -hmm. and watch the birds. Um, so, so yeah, uh, for me, they're mostly outside. Yeah. Um, and then I, as a function of, of um, both the work that I do and the way that I attend to my own recovery, um, I have rituals, you yeah. know, whether they're my, my writing in the morning or that ODAT book that I talked about that one day at a time where I make sure that I'm doing a reading um, and, and poetry. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know about glimmers or think about glimmers so that I would have consciously put some of these things into place a long time ago. Um, yeah. yeah. Joy is not something we should, uh, we should depend on accident to let into our lives. I think we do have to schedule moments. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's one of those things that once you start to like think about it, then it does become yeah. a habit. Really, you start thinking about glimmers, and then you start to notice them more. You find the extra in the ordinary, really, don't you? You start looking and, at things a little bit more closely and a bit more carefully. <laughs> and and it's interesting in terms of synchronicity. Um, last year in January, the author of The Artist's Way came out with a book called Bright for Life. And one of the tools is a daily quota. But the daily quota has to be set extraordinarily low. Mm -hmm. And all those perfectionists out there right now are going, low? You want to set a bar low? And the point of the low bar is when we hit the bar, we get a dopamine hit. You know, yeah. we get those chemicals coursing through our brain that say, yes, good, good on you. Um, and then we're energized to do something more, something else. So anything that helps us to manipulate that reptilian brain, by all means, go for it. Oh, exactly. Anything that gets the dopamine is uh, it's all good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it helps with the procrastination as well that you were talking about earlier as well. So. Yeah, the, even just that moment to breathe and say, okay, I don't want to do this. And the, the point there is, have we broken the task down into enough little pieces so that instead of beating ourselves up because I haven't done the bookkeeping, I can say to myself, well, I pulled all the files together. I'll do the rest of the bookkeeping tomorrow. It's, again, having a gentle way. You know, would we yell at a child for not completing a huge task? Or would we say, let's sit down and do this little bit of it? Yes, exactly. Well, it's the same yeah. with writing, like, 
you could say, all right, I'm going to write a book. Or as you were saying, you could just say, right, I'm going to write a little bit. Or you could use the, is it the Pomodoro method. You set your watch for 15 minutes and you do 15 minutes and then you have a break and you do something else. And then you yeah. do another 15 minutes, you know, yeah. you break it yeah. down into more manageable bits. And then you're getting your dopamine hits. The, the other thing that, the other one that I found most helpful and I only learned I only formally formally learned about it recently. Um, it, it's called the Hemingway method. Okay. But because I'm always so distracted, I actually have been practicing this for years. And that's to leave off mid-sentence or mid-thought or mid-idea so that when you sit down again, it's not a blank page that's staring at you. It's a thought you're going to finish. Ah. And then the writing keeps flowing. Oh, I think so, I need that naturally because well, I just get distracted. Well, and I knew, you, I knew you'd understand that. I have been doing it inadvertently for years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very good. But then my problem is and I come back and then I can't remember what my original thought was. But then, suppose then you can pick up another one. <laughs> exactly. I trust that whatever the thought for the day is, it's the one that's meant to be. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Well, yeah. Um, maybe to finish with one final question: Do you have any um final words of wisdom for our listeners, Eve? Just to keep showing up. Just to keep showing up. I, um. I am always distressed at this time of year to see all of the um, the posts on resolutions and this, that, and the other, um, because I think an awful lot of the self-help advice and books start by thinking we're way more together than we are. And I think it's really important for some of us to bear witness that there have been days in our lives when getting out of the bed feels darn well near impossible. Yeah. Um, and seriously, being able to put into place the systems and the tools that make, that bring a kind of regularity um, to our lives so that we know when we're having a good day and we can congratulate ourselves. But we know what to do to mitigate the tough ones. Um, and I think until we start telling the truth about the tough days, um, we're never going to be able to share those skills and collectively overcome them. Yeah. And I think that's especially hard these days with social media, with all the carefully curated Instagram posts of photographs of people's lives look perfect and even their business posts and things look so wonderful and they don't show the bad days and the days when their clients and things haven't paid or everything's going wrong so it looks like everybody else is succeeding in life and you're thinking oh my goodness well my life isn't going great so it's, it's even harder now to think that things aren't perfect for everybody else. And with AI coming it's just going to um it's, you know, it's going to be more difficult. I 
Um, don't, and, and I and I caution myself not to believe what I'm seeing if it's not what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think that there's an awful lot about social media that's for good. Yeah. Um, but I, I do caution uh, that it's going to be in the actual company of other people um, that we get the answers we need. And it's easy to say not to compare ourselves. Um, but yeah, I, I think that more and more we recognize that those feeds are curated. Yeah. But because of the so many keyboard warriors, people like judging, you know, all the nasty comments and stuff. It's all very well to say, like, oh, you should put on all the hard stuff, the bad days and stuff. But if you do, then you're judged as well. So I can understand why people don't. So maybe start a revolution. If everybody puts on the, the crap stuff and people <sighs> stop being so bloody judgmental and just stop being nasty, <laughs> just everybody just be real and human and roar and just be human. Let us all be human and just... I, I think that there are there are safe spaces. It, it certainly, you know, there are private Facebook groups, you know, there are invitation only spaces. Yeah. Um, and I really encourage people to, to find their tribe uh, yeah. in that way. And I, I actually just uh, referenced this in a, in a LinkedIn post recently, I was reminded of, you know, when I was moving to, to Ireland, whinging to the guy that, cut my hair. What, how am I like, I can't come back to the States for a haircut. <laughs> it just looked at me like not having any of my nonsense because just look for people who, who look like they have a great haircut. Look for people where you can say, I want what they have. And, and truly I, that's the best advice in terms of finding that family of choice. Yeah. I want what you have in all your imperfections. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I was thinking about maybe starting a, a Glimmer a Day private Facebook group. So maybe I will. Maybe if you can't find it, maybe just start it yourself. Maybe I will. Yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think you're part of the Empowering Change in the Artist's Way yeah. uh, group. And uh, you're more than welcome to to put it out there and, and invite folks to share their glimmer and join join the private group. You know, this is I have a, a colleague who runs a series of uh, civic conversations on behalf of the Inter International Futures Forum, and he talks about being in the company of like hearted people. Yeah. Forget this whole like-mindedness. Yeah. Um, we, we need to be around like-hearted people. Yeah, exactly. People who yeah. Can, yeah, see the, the light-hearted side of life as well. As all yeah. yeah, exactly. Gen generosity of spirit. The, yeah. You know, that's what you're that's what we're we're all looking for. Definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Eve, and I really appreciate you staying up so late to chat to uh, me. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And it's been a delight, really. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, it's been such a fun and interesting chat and hearing your story and um, sharing 
like your story and listening to your wisdom honestly if we could bottle it it would be expensive it really would um I could have asked you so many more questions but we'll just have to leave it at that because I don't know what time it is with you now but I'm sure uh, Cinderella might have uh, lost her shoe by now (laughs) 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 but you can find Eve and Empowering Change on LinkedIn and other platforms which I'll put um, in the bio so thank you for listening and as always remember in the tough times look for the glimmers and in the good times be the glimmer <laughs> <laughs>